Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emerging and established artists, gallerists, curators and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host, Oscar Van Huys. In this episode, I sat down with senior curator Uski Ursoy of the Asia Art Archive in Hong Kong. We discussed the transformation of the Asia Art Archive, how they change their research approach, the research areas that they are looking into, how they think about preservation of art, and the relationship between curating and writing. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the Asia Art Archive in Hong Kong for offering the library space to host this podcast. Asia Art Archive has one of the most valuable growing collections of material on the recent history of art from Asia which is freely available from their website and on-site library in Hong Kong. Christie's Education Asia will launch Transacting in the Art World, a legal and practical guide. This is a special series of free virtual lectures starting on Saturday the 6th of May with three highly experienced art lawyers and legal experts. Together they will demystify the art world by introducing the most important legal and practical issues that impact artistic production, value creation and market transactions. Listeners of The Last Supper will receive a 15% discount. To claim your discount, simply follow the instructions in this podcast description. Hello, Oscar. Many thanks for inviting me to the Asia Art Archive in Hong Kong. How are you today? I'm good, Oscar. How are you? I'm really well. And before we begin, can you tell me where we are in Hong Kong? Sure. We are on the 11th floor of an office building in Shangwan on Hong Kong Island. Um, you might not expect it, but it's a library that's open to the public six days a week. And right now we are in a room surrounded by books. And uh, we can also see the, the urban landscape of Shangwan of Hong Kong. Yes, we are indeed in the middle of the city and just outside the meeting room with floor-to-ceiling glass windows, we can see the skyscrapers of Hong Kong. They are almost at a touching distance from us. Exactly. And we've been actually in this building as Asia Art Archive. This is where I work at um, as a curator. We've been here for the last 15 years or so. And this is where we also started developing our library, our archive. And um, so the, the books that you are seeing, you know, this is the, the culmination of over 20 years of donations and community building efforts. And just a lot of documents about, you know, different type of stories about art in Asia, including Hong Kong. Let's talk about the renovation of the Asia Art Archive. What can you say how this unfolded and why it was needed? Yeah, we've been thinking about finding a home for Asia Art Archive for about 10 years or more than 10 years, I would say. But in the last couple of years, especially during the COVID, uh, we had the opportunity to slow down a little bit. We had to, to close down the, the library to the public for the, you know, the, the regulations suggested by the, the Hong Kong government. And that gave us the, the time and just space, brain space as well, to, to think about how we want to reimagine what the library could look like or might look like. And because this is an incredible, I would say, uh, set of resources that we've been building and we've been developing for many, many years now. But the, the space was much more cramped compared to, to what we see today. And uh, it was not doing the the best job to communicate what we wanted to to think about libraries and archives 
Because I don't know about you, uh, most of my friends who are not familiar with Asia Art Archive, they would ask me, so, you know, you work in this depository that's built by experts, for experts. It's uh, a lot of friends tend to, to see it as an insular space, as an isolated space. Uh, what we try to argue for is that libraries and archives, they are social spaces in the first place, and they are spaces for storytelling. So, of course, you know, we work very closely with the community of art historians, of scholars in Hong Kong and beyond, but we also work with different art practitioners, artists, creatives to, to think about how we can multiply the stories that we can have. So there is this social aspect to it, you know, when we think about archives and libraries. And I think the, the current space really communicates that idea because in the middle of the library, instead of the, the books, we actually have a space that we call the reading room where we have common tables and you can actually, as a user, change the, the location of each table. So you can also think about how you want to use the space. But this is also where we have our public talks, our workshops, we had a Linocut workshop by, you know, that was led by, led by uh, Printhow, for instance, over the weekend. Um, so artist-driven workshops. This is where we have our exhibitions. And we also invite artists to, to come and to intervene into the space. So it's a living space, I would say. It's an active space all the time. And the renovated library really communicates that idea, in my opinion, that it's a space for gathering, for co-learning, for discovery, and for artistic interventions. What can you say about the new Asia Art Archive floor plan? And specifically, what can you do now that you were not able to do previously? In the previous space, the center of the space was occupied by just books themselves. So when we wanted to have users, you know, who would want to sit and do their research or their reading, they would have little nooks in the space. Or when we wanted to have exhibitions in the space, it was like a treasure hunt, you know, because it was never like walking into a gallery space where you can actually see artworks from a distance and then you can get closer to them. So your perception of the works would change, the, the narrative of the exhibition would change. The space basically didn't necessarily allow for that type of interactions because it was full of bookshelves and it was really finding things in between. Right now, the, the main difference, in my opinion, is that we put the, the users, we put people in the center and now, now they are surrounded by books and archival materials. Um, so it's the, the exact opposite of what we actually had with the, the previous space. If you like this podcast, there are a few small things you can do to make a big difference. Click the follow button of this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thank you and let's continue. I recall from the old space that you had to pass by several bookshelves before you saw the welcome or reception area, whereas now it is a lot more open and welcoming. The bookshelves are in this new space, are placed on the sides that allow people to be in the center. Although it's been open for a few months, this transformation from the old to the new space happened very quick, I think. How long or short did it take? It was about six months. But incredible team effort, I would say, especially our the library team. They basically packed and moved and moved back more than 1,000 um, cardboard boxes. 
So we had to, to put everything into a temporary storage space uh, during the renovation and then have them back here. So it was an incredible endeavor and uh, really a testament to what we can do as a team like that. That's really amazing teamwork to organize this in such a short period of time. Now, let's talk about your current position, which is public program lead at the Asia Art Archive. What can you say about this role? This is the part that we can maybe cut as well, because there is this change that's happening right now. My new title is Senior Curator. The, the previous title was Public Programs Lead, but it's not official yet. <laughs> it's going to be official by the end of the, the month. So can I just say that I work as a curator here? Of course you can, because by the time this episode is published, it will be official. And this also brings me down to the next question I have for you. Because you hold multiple roles, including writer, now curator, and you used to be the public program lead. How are all these roles related and relevant at a public library and archive? Mm -hmm. Especially, I think it's unexpected to have the position of a curator at a library and at an archive. And it goes back to, to how we want to think about these resources because uh, we're not thinking about gathering these primary and secondary materials together and we expect for future researchers. You know, this is usually how people think about conventional archives and conventional libraries. Whereas what we try to do is to open things up. So we try to think about how to display what we have and how to interpret our holdings as well. And we don't do it by ourselves. We invite artists, we invite writers, we invite curators, we invite educators, we invite researchers to come and to, to interpret the, the materials that we have and also ask the, the questions that we're also interested in. When it comes to our research interest, maybe I can also say a couple of words about that, because when we think about Asia, you know, as this large and vast and undefined or constantly contested site, there is not a very defined framework that we try to think about about the region itself. But what we are interested in is how, for instance, artists, they would contribute to different art communities and cultural communities in the cities where they live in and also when they travel. So it's more about how people move, how ideas move within this area, how things move across nation-state borders. And I would say, what are the, the cultural, cultural histories that are both mutual, shared and also divergent? So these are the, the type of stories that we are trying to, to look at. So when it comes to, to for instance, archives, the, the type of artists that we work with, these would be people who would be wearing different hats. So it won't be only about an artist making things, but artists who would work as educators, as organizers, they would start festivals, they would curate exhibitions, they would found or co-found um, independent spaces. So when you also look at their archives, you have an understanding of the, the different communities that they're being part of. It's not only their evolution as an individual artist, but their contribution to a larger community. For instance, I can give one example, one or two examples. The One of the most recent archives that we digitized, and I can also say a little bit more about that because we don't hold physical archives, we don't own physical archives, but we digitize them and make them accessible online. One of the most recent ones is Ellen Bao's archive, um, who's a Hong Kong-based artist and who's been active in 
new media art and video art in Hong Kong starting with the 1980s. So when we look at her archive, for instance, we see how she contributed to artist run spaces in this area, what were the, the feminist art groups or experimental art groups that she was part of, what were the LGBTI spaces that she was part of. So you really see the changes in different communities, might sometimes overlapping, sometimes um, you know sitting next to each other, but you really have a sense of the, the larger community. So as, the, as a curator at an archive like this, what we try to do is to, to think about what are the stories that we can tell. So that's the reason why we would invite living artists. That's why we would invite other art practitioners to come to join us to develop exhibitions, to develop talks, workshops. So it's not only all, also about talking, I would say. That's why I was giving the example of the Linocut printing workshop that we had over the, the weekend, because it's also about doing things together, sometimes in smaller groups, you know, hands-on things that we're also interested in, experiential things. Another example that comes to my mind is we hosted the Floating Projects Collective. That's a Hong Kong-based collective that really thinks about experimentation and collaboration. Their current space is at JCCAC. And they came to, to the library and we hosted them for two days. It was a durational performance that lasted for the opening hours of the library, which is from 10 a.m. to, to 6 p.m. for two days, where they brought discarded materials, found materials, and they just improvised with these things. This is a series of the, the performances that they call the assemblage that they've been doing since 2015, but they've been always doing these performances in their own space. For us, what was really interesting was that the site was the library itself, so it was also about, you know, what are the limitations about the library? Can we play music? Or what type of a mess can we create? So it's always this um, negotiation between, or conversation between the, the people that we invite, what are the things that we can do together, not only at the, uh, not only about the, the resources that we have, I would say, in terms of the, the archival materials or the library materials, but it's also thinking about the space itself. Uh, what are the, the potentials of the space that we have? What are the uh, limitations of the space? And for us, the, the question is that how can we also think about the space as a resource, as a tool for people to basically play with, to, to think about and to, to experiment with? So these are the, some of the, the examples of the things that we try to do, but it always goes back to different type of research that we do. It's art historical research, is artistic research, and it's curatorial research. So very different formats of thinking about how to look for things, how to analyze things, how to study things, and also how to tell different stories. You mentioned the region or the geographical area of Asia. When you refer to Asia, what constitutes the Asia region at Art Asia Archive, especially with your Turkish background? Because Turkey is partly connected to Central Asia and Europe. Although, if you would ask probably the general audience and public in Hong Kong, they may not consider Turkey as part of Asia. So, from the viewpoint of the Art Asia Archive, how would you describe or consider what the Asia region is? For me, what's interesting is not only to, to think about the boundaries, because I think we are not in a position to have these defined notions about what Asia is or where it ends, where it starts. It's mostly about how 
artists and art communities, how they interpret it and how they exchange ideas, how they move around, what type of references that they would use from the place that they are in, that they are based in, but also the, the places that they are interested in. One example that comes to my mind is an artist whose archive is with us, uh, the digitized version is with us. Her name is Nilima Sheikh, um, and she's been active. She's been active as an artist for the last 50 years. And this was the first exhibition that I worked on at Asia Art Archive after I joined the team in 2017. And I worked with our researcher who's based in India, Sneha Raghavan. And we visited Nilima Sheikh's studio and we were asking about all of her references, you know, her wealth of references when it comes to art history, when it comes to literature. And we did end up speaking about um, manuscript paintings from the, the Ottoman period, or we did end up talking about Dunhuang Caves in China. So as someone who's based in Baroda, as an artist who's been based on Baroda, and who's been thinking about questions about home, displacement, violence, nation building, her wealth of references was not limited to, to one place. It was really bringing all of these different elements from this range of countries, range of cultures, range of languages. So I think this is how I'd like to, to think about it, how, how artists think about these references and how ideas can move in this region that we uh, loosely define as Asia and how they themselves, they move. For instance, she would be someone who would visit these places, who would contribute to exhibitions or festivals or literature circles in different cities in this region as well. So this is the, the type of thinking that we try to, to have at AAA as well. It's really about how these different cultural communities, how they speak to each other, uh, what they learn from each other, what resonates with them, what does not resonate with them. So these are the, the, the questions and the, the details that we are also interested in as AAA people. And when you as a team have to decide what is being archived or not at the AAA, how do you determine this? Because you just said there is no physical boundary to what Asia is. How then do you judge whether the work is relevant for AAA or not if you don't have any physical or geographical boundaries? That's an excellent question. I think there are two ways to, to answer your question. One of them goes back to what I was saying about what type of artists we, we work with. So again, when you look at their archives, it would not be about only the evolution of one single person, but it would be about different cultural communities that they participated in. Um, so that's definitely one of our, I would say, criteria, because we try to, to think about an expanded notion of art. So it's not only about writing art history based on singular artworks, singular exhibitions, the most visible, let's say, publications, but also trying to, to think about what's happening around them, what are the conversations around them, sometimes lesser visible one as well. Which brings me back to my second point to, to answer your question, which is really about the research areas that we have as the Asia Art Archive team to think about the, the lesser visible histories in the region. And basically by that, I mean that we designated certain research areas in this region that we call Asia, the art histories and the cultural histories that are less studied or less visible. 
and we basically determined these areas and we said that we could basically focus on our work on, for instance, performance art, so ephemeral practices that are less documented. Or we said we wanted to work more on women and gender in art history in this region. Or we said that we are interested in exhibition history, so not only about singular artworks, but when artworks meet with the public, you know, what type of discussions happen. So this is how we will also try to, to think about how we collect archival materials, how we digitize them. So we build on these research interests and then all the, the new incoming collections would be responding to, to the existing ones. But we are very much aware that we cannot be extremely comprehensive and represent the region. We are very much aware of that. Um, we just try to, to think about how we can create a resource that people can use, you know, artists can use, students can use, researchers can use to tell just different stories about the, the region. I would say this is how we try to think about collection building as well. Um, when it comes to the library, because I've been thinking or speaking more about the, the archive itself, with the library we have a similar line of thought too. So in the library you would find reference books, theory books, exhibition catalogues, artist monographs. So it's not necessarily organized according to themes, but according to these formats that we've been focusing on. But for the past couple of years, we've been also thinking about what conventional libraries might not necessarily collect. So we do have a collection of zines, for instance, zines that are made by artists, zines that are made by artist groups or artist collectives. So these formats, they would be basically circulating around in a much more informal way. They don't necessarily have ISBN numbers. You cannot necessarily track them. We try to, to keep, for instance, one copy of the designs that we can access, and it's really about the community effort. And uh, these are Elaine Lin and Sam Chow, two of my colleagues from the library team that's been uh, spearheading the design collection. They've been working on this. And we've been thinking about, let's say, more, I don't necessarily like the word, but I would say more marginalized voices or the, the voices that wouldn't necessarily enter a library like this. So these are also things that we try to, to think about. Or right behind you, we have the independent initiative files that the library team also started several years ago. And these are the ephemera that are printed by various artist-run spaces. It starts with Hong Kong, but also it goes beyond Hong Kong. And these are things, again, won't be that interesting for libraries. These are exhibition brochures, you know, small things that they published. And they are not necessarily these big books that you would find at bookshops. So this is, a, this is also a way that we try to, to think about the, the library as well, you know, just to, to think about what is less possible to, to find and how can we also capture voices that would not have a lot of presence or representation in a space like this. So is it fair to say, from what I understand, the Art Asia Archive is very much print-focused, or what kind of assets or art artifacts do you archive and document? For the archive, it's a wide range of materials. We would have videos, we would have correspondences, we would have letters, 
we would have CDs and DVDs, so all these audio, video materials as well. So it's a combination of things. But for the archive itself, it's accessible from the, the website. And this is maybe the point where I can speak a little bit more about the digitization. And it's something that we started after 10 years of work around the, the early 2000, 2010s when the, the team was growing and when there was interest and also capacity in the team to, to think about a more historical perspective. Because for the first 10 years, our team members would work almost like journalists. They would go to festivals, they would document things, they would have interviews with artists, so they would be almost our correspondents, you know, to, to document the, the present moment. But after 10 years of working like that, the, the team has decided that we can basically look at the, the more historical precedents, the previous generations. And this is when we started doing our archival projects and the, the format started being a digital format. There are several reasons for that. The first one that usually comes to, to people's minds is the lack of space and how it's very difficult to find space in Hong Kong to preserve these materials. But I think more importantly for us, it's really about how we think about preservation. It's not only about preserving the, the actual physical materials themselves, but it's, as we call it, the preservation through sharing. That's why we try to make everything online accessible. You can look at them from your own computer and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. And we also achieve is that we don't necessarily centralize these materials in one place. Uh, we don't say that you have to come to Hong Kong, you have to, to come to, to the space to, to use these materials. So that idea, going back to that idea of generosity, this is what we would try to, to do. First of all would be to, to think about with the multiplicity of stories, that's the, the first level of generosity that we try to basically argue for. And the, the second one would be making these materials accessible online so that not everything would be centralized and hosted in one place. Now, let's talk about your archive method or artifacts as well. The decision and judgment that you make if a piece is archive worthy, is that an internal decision that is made by the internal team at AAA or are there outsiders involved as well? What can you say about this archiving method or approach that you have at the Art Asia Archive? There are also different methods. So for instance, for independent initiative files that I've just talked about, if there are any artists you know, who have independent spaces and who wanted to come and share their materials with us, these are the materials that we collect. But on top of that, we also have a research team, a dedicated research team, uh, who would work on archival projects, who would really think about these research threads that I talked about, and who would say that these are the, the archives that we can consider to build on the, the existing materials that we have. And this is how these new archives can lead to the new scholarship. So that's the, the role for the, the research team mainly. They would basically designate, they would suggest or propose archives to, to work on. And we would speak as a team and decide as a team. And then they would basically start the process working with the artist or the educator who's entrusting us with their archive and we would organize it with them, uh, we would digitize it, and then we would basically make the materials online afterwards. 
And how far are you with the digitalization of your existing archive and bringing this online to make it available for everyone with an internet connection? Because it must be a very labor-intensive task to do and complete this. Yeah, we have more than 45 research collections or archival collections that are available on the website right now. If I can give you a sense about the, the scale, we have around 120,000 records uh, at Asia Art Archive collections, and around half of them is the, the library, and the, the half of them would be the research collections, more or less. If you don't mind, can you explain to me the difference between a public library and the Art Asia Archive? Is it correct that Art Asia Archive is a non-circulating library and what I mean by that is that this is available for the public. However, you cannot take the books or materials with you. You have to read this on site. Yeah, it's a non-circulating library for the moment, yes. That's a very interesting distinction between a conventional public library and the Art Asia Archive. What are your favorite libraries? Can I ask you that? Of course, you can ask, Oskay. Well, interestingly... Before Art Asia Archive opened, or before I knew of its existence, my favorite library is in the City Hall on Connaught Road in central Hong Kong. And the reason why this is my favorite library is not because of its books, but because I discovered that on the fourth floor, I think, I'm not really sure, because I haven't been there for years because of COVID and I moved to Lama Island, there is a floor with law and legal literature and this floor, I discovered, is the most quiet in Hong Kong. This is a really old building with really thick walls and you don't hear anything. No air conditioning, no traffic, no people who talk continuously. There is absolutely no noise. The only sound you will hear is the creaking of old wooden chairs when people get up. And this sounds maybe a bit strange, but Hong Kong noise pollution is very intense. When I was in Europe, I would go to a library to borrow books from a really young age until adulthood. Whereas in Hong Kong, I use it to find a really quiet space because wherever you go from shops to streets with traffic, there is constant humming of cars, air conditioning in offices, Restaurants are extremely noisy, and even when you hike, you hear people talking or having their phone on with music. For me, to find a space in the center of Central was a real luxury, and that's why I used the Central Library or the library on Connaught Road as my favorite place until I discovered Art Asia Archive. And now, since it's refurbishment, but even before that, I come here to read, do my research about art in Asia, look at the educational shows and programs that you have, and work at Art Asia Archive in total silence. I am still amazed how this is the best kept secret in Hong Kong. I think you make a very good point about the users themselves, because I think that's also one of the, the reasons why we are committed to, to work with secondary schools in Hong Kong. We work with more than 250 secondary schools in the city. And that's spearheaded by my colleague Susanna Chung from Learning and Participation Department. And it's not only about empowering the, 
the educators, the, the teachers, with you know what, with giving them materials about how to teach contemporary art, but also you know hearing from them, you know what they need and how we can provide them, but also bringing students here and to basically show what a library might be, and you know having these hands-on workshops with artists in the library with students th- saying that you know this is this can be a space for not only for just reading by yourself but you can do things together you can do things you can create things as part of a group and i think it does start early in that sense um, i also want to make a point about the noise the element of noise and sound that you mentioned this was something that was a little bit confusing for me for instance with the, the previous library because you would enter the space and that would be one uniform way of acting or talking meaning that if I were to give an exhibition tour for instance I would keep apologizing to the users who were reading or who were working in front of a computer so right now what we did with the new library is that there are three sections so you actually walking into the lounge where we also have comfortable couches where you can sit down and really have a chat The reading room that we've been talking about, the the main area where we have exhibitions and public programs and all these artistic interventions that I talked about, this is somewhere a site in between. So sometimes everyone is silent working by themselves, but sometimes, you know, people have conversations. But this is also where we have all these activities. And we have the study area that's right around the corner here. And that's really dedicated to people who want to have a silent space where they can just do their research by themselves. So it's also interesting to to think about these different levels of sound and noise and also how people want to interact with the the library. I think these respective sections also tell something about how we want to think about the the library itself. Definitely a silent area where people can have a peaceful mind and they can do their reading, but also socialize and do things together. In recent years, Hong Kong has seen an increase in choice of private and public art spaces, including galleries, many museums, and independent art spaces. What can you say about how you collaborate and partner with all these different institutions, groups, and organizations here in Asia? Of course, I think that's something that's very important for us too, to collaborate and partner up with different type of institutions and initiatives. So we've been speaking about independent Initiative Files, for instance, so that's basically part of our conversation with much smaller scale artist groups or artist-run spaces. But we also work with much larger scale museums. Sometimes it's a collaboration for developing an exhibition. Sometimes it's contributing to an existing exhibition with an archival section or sometimes is just developing workshop. This weekend, for instance, we're going to have a Wikipedia workshop where we invite participants to learn how to edit Wikipedia. And it's a series that we started in 2018 with Amplus in Hong Kong. And for us, we've been doing this because we want to, to think about more diverse and generous art histories. So thinking about what is lacking in this, for instance, the, the most used encyclopedia, only online encyclopedia in the world. And this one, for instance, is part of Art and Feminism, which is a global campaign that tries to 
close the information gap around feminism, women artists, non-binary artists on Wikipedia or starting with Wikipedia. So that's been an incredible partnership with them as well. So yes, so it's a wide range of institutional partnerships that we have. Art Asia Archive is not a conventional art gallery or public library space. And I make the assumption here that how you curate this space has its unique challenges as well. What else can you say about this? It's a curious one because oftentimes when people want to see exhibitions, they usually expect you to see them in a dedicated gallery space that would be transformed into to that exhibition, that would be only designed for that exhibition and the, the narration or the story of the exhibition itself. For us, for the exhibitions that we host in the library, you can say that it's a limitation because we are surrounded by books. It's not a seemingly neutral space that we are talking about, but it's actually a lot of potential, in my opinion, because you present things always in conversation with books, uh, with research materials. So the exhibition itself, as a form, it becomes an extension of the, the research that we do. One example that I can give is actually the exhibition just, again, right behind you right now, which is called The Collective School, um, an exhibition that we developed together with Good School, a Jakarta-based collective that runs a school for other collectives in Indonesia. And for that, for instance, what we tried to do was to, to invite eight collectives that were part of their already existing school and these collectives, they come from different parts of Asia. Some of them are from Kyrgyzstan, from the Philippines, from Indonesia, from Malaysia, from Taiwan. So it's a very diverse group of people that we're talking about. And we engage them with some of the historical materials, archival materials that we have focusing on historical collectives, you know, starting with the, the 1980s. And in the exhibition, what you see is their artistic responses to these archival materials. And for instance, this is an example for me of how to, to use the space, because it's not only about an exhibition about art collectives, but it's an exhibition about how this specific group of art collectives are responding to the archival materials. So it's really an extension of our collections, our resources, and the, the questions that we are asking. And the, the main question for this show is how artists create learning models for themselves and especially in collectives how do they learn from each other so with the the existing materials that we have in the collections we ask all of these contemporary art collectives you know what resonates with you what doesn't resonate with you what are the changing urgencies so to speak about the relevance of these materials we created these conversations group conversations and in the end each of them basically created an artwork that we see on display. And these range from videos to card games. So the idea of the play is also very inherent to, to the work that we did with this group. Which brings me also to that idea of, you know, we were speaking about the hands-on activities, but also to thinking about role-playing or games or play. Thinking about these terms or these tools to creatively tell stories is something that we are very much interested in doing and I think the library is one of the best places where we can do this. One of the great benefits of the exhibition and display space that you have here is that you can develop an entire educational program around this as well. 
when you curate a program, what is your purpose or what are the program values that you work with? Dialogue and knowledge sharing are really key values for our team. And exhibitions are just one format that we use for that. And you are right in saying that there's this display that you can see in the library itself, but then it's populated with lots of programs. Um, so that example of performance by Floating Projects Collective, that was an extension of this exhibition, for instance. So it was not, let's say, a panel where people were speaking about how artists learn from each other in the setting of a collective, but it was more about thinking the performance as a tool where people would negotiate for the space, for the, the noise that they would make, for the, the you know improvised sculptures that they would make, at what point they would do individual creations, at what point would they join a group and they would do something together. So it was an example of that. Or speaking about play, one of the first programs that we organize, it was with the, the participants of this exhibition, with these collectives that I was talking about. And instead of inviting them to explain or give a sense of where they are based, what they care about, what their research is, um, we invited them to play a role-playing game that was a card game. It's a, a cooperative game that was led by good school members. And everyone basically speculated that they were part of a group. So it was a collective of collectives. And they were giving certain challenges. And uh, they were giving a specific amount of time. And they had to resolve these challenges. You know, one example could be one of the funny ones for me. There are two people in your collective and they start dating, but you have a project to end. But they have been procrastinating for that reason because they had a fight. So how do you resolve that situation? And they would say, you have five minutes to, to resolve this conflict. So everyone would speak. You would see how they would present their ideas, their suggestions, how they would negotiate and how, to, how they would come to a, a decision in the end. So with this playful format, it also gives a lot of clues about how these artists work within collectives. Uh, so also this is the type of programs that we try to do. We of course have the, you know, the presentational model where people present their research, but for us it's important to have these experimental modes of creating this dialogue or knowledge exchange as well. At the beginning, we talked about that you are originally from Turkey and that Turkey is the kind of bridge between the East and the West. And you studied in New York and now work in Hong Kong. So you basically have experience of living both and working both sides of the world. But how did you end up in Hong Kong from New York? I've been actually following Asia Artaikar's work now for about 15 years because there is a sister organization in Istanbul that also has digital collections and I consider that institution SALT as um, one of my schools. So I've been following their work and how they've been thinking about digitization, how they've been thinking about preservation, how they've been thinking about or rethinking what libraries might be or what archives might be. So there was this long distance, let's say, love relationship Maybe it was a platonic one because I was just following what AA was doing uh, from a distance. But I had the, the opportunity to, to come to Hong Kong for the first time for a residency. So I was a curator in residence as 
at Spring Workshop, which was an only five-year initiative that was founded by Mimi Brown in Hong Kong. And this is how I had the chance to have a conversation with different initiatives and different institutions in the city. For me, I was interested in the question of what are the demands and expectations of artists from larger scale institutions and how and how is that dialogue happening in different places? That was, that's was that been one of the, the questions that I've been asking pretty much since the, the beginning of my practice because I'm very much interested in that negotiation, uh, especially for public institutions where people can say that, you know, these are the things that we would expect from you. It's not only about transparency, accountability. It's not about public funding for me. It's about the, the users' demands from these institutions and how institutions basically respond to that. So that was the, the research that I was doing here as well. And it's the, the first time when I met several members of the team because I had met Claire Shu, um, who is our co-founding director previously in Istanbul, but it was the first time when I met different team members and I saw how differently they were thinking about what an archive might be. So it was this very different and divergent voices that were very interesting for me. And, you know, the rest is usually luck. And here I am. (laughs) That's a really amazing journey. And you've seen and experienced the transformation of Hong Kong firsthand as well, because so much has happened in the last few years, not only the social political landscape, but also the introduction of many new major cultural institutions, such as the M Plus Museum, the Palace Museum, and the refurbishment of the Hong Kong Museum of Art, or the HKMOA, or the Hong Kong MOA. At the same time, you've been writing about art and the development of the arts in Hong Kong and beyond. And writing is probably one of the most difficult disciplines and skills that you can develop. At least for me, it is incredibly challenging. Or do you find it really easy to write? Oh, it's never easy. (laughs) It will never be easy either. But is it something you enjoy? I very much enjoy it. And I also see it as part of my curatorial practice. So it's not only about exhibition making, but it's about writing. It's about editing. It's about translating. And it's about programming at the same time. So going back to what you were saying about creating dialogues and exchanging what we know, this is the area that I'm most excited about. Okay, so this may be a cheeky question, but do you believe then that you need to be a good writer to be a good curator? If I make that claim, would it sound like I consider myself as a good writer? (laughs) Never, I would say. I think it's about organizing your thoughts and um, thinking about creative forms that would help you to convey the ideas or the questions that you have in your mind and also the questions that you develop with your peers, with artists. So for me, it's just one of the, the very interesting formats where we can experiment with things. Usually when I write, I contribute to, let's say, um, magazines or books that are about you know, contemporary artists or contemporary institutions. But I also run an online publication that's called mess.org, which is an artist-centered publication co-founded by my artist friend, Marve Unsal. And here, for instance, we divide the the content into two. The content is by artists and on artists because we really want to think more about artist writings. But it also gives this idea, it gives the space 
for us to, to expand the dinner conversations that we have. So it's not an institutional voice, it's not only this academic way of thinking, but how we can help each other sustain each other's writing practices as people working in the individual arts field. So I'll try to, to think about writing in these very different ways, I would say. But we also have an incredible editorial team at Asia Arts Archive, and we do lots of collaborative works too. My colleague, Paul Furman, who's our managing editor, he started a reading group and a writing group around six months ago. And um, this morning I was actually writing the, the draft for that group because we've been discussing you know, what it means to write together, what it means to, to write collectively. Um, some of the, the readings that we did, it was also related to that. You know, For instance, there were two feminist scholars who would say, we complete each other's sentences. One of us starts the sentence and the other one basically comes up with something that would complement it or complicate it. But for instance, over the past six months, I realized that it's not only about the form of writing, it's really about the, the people who can create this space of trust and where you can speak about not only about your intellectual curiosities, but also the fragilities that you might have. So at the end of the day, I think it's all about people, which goes, in, in my opinion, which goes back to how we do things at AAA. It's really about the team. It's really about our communities who would come and who would think with us. Of course, resources are crucial to do what we do because this is where we start. This is the heart of the organization. But at the end of the day, it's really about people, I would say. When you work and write for the Asia Art Archive, what kind of developments and questions are you currently exploring and looking at? At AAA, we have very different research interests, as we were talking about it. So when it comes to exhibitions and programs, what we try to do is to have thematic focuses that would be for about two years. And we would develop exhibitions and programs and writings around that. And these would be related to these areas that I was talking about, performance art, women and gender in art history. And most recently, we've been working on pedagogy. And we've been tackling this big question about art education from different angles, especially our research team. They've been working on archival projects and also seminar projects with art historians that are really about historically important schools in this region. And we've been thinking about, as the programs team, we've been thinking about the artist role, inventing models or in responding to, to existing models or creating things within the, the larger institutions and this collective school exhibitions and is an extension of that. So thinking with artists about the, the necessary educational models that need to be invented, that need to be supported. So even the, the school, that good school, our main collaborator for this exhibition, they created in Jakarta. You cannot go there as, a, as an individual and as a participant. You have to be part of an existing collective to go to school. And what you do at school is to, to study other historical collectives and see the historical precedents or to, to think about the relevance of this work right now and also having the, the historical context. Or you would think about how we're going to do things. So this, this exhibition is an extension of their school as well because we had to, to work together. It was not only inviting these collectives, these participants separately, but everything was done in group discussion. So in that terms, the exhibition itself, it becomes 
a tool for research, for us to, to ask questions about how artists create these models, why they create these models, how these models be relevant for uh, much larger groups, um, because these are about financial structures that they are creating. It's really about pooling their resources and distributing their resources evenly, the, the format that they use. It would be about intellectual structures that they create, um, you know, for instance, challenging the idea, having an art school as a place where you go to hone your skills as an individual artist and you become part of a network. So this is how we try to, to think about the exhibition, as I was saying. It's always an expansion of the, the research that we do. And uh, this has been mainly the area that I've been also focusing with the, the rest of the, the team. Moving forward, I think with the, the new library, there's definitely a renewed commitment to Hong Kong. The, the smaller room that we are sitting in right now, it's called the Hong Kong Room. Maybe the, the only thematic, let's say, selection of materials from the, the library collections. And we've been thinking about also the, the ways of telling stories about Hong Kong or the, the logic of the archive when it comes to, to representing Hong Kong. And our next project, that's going to be a small exhibition with six Hong Kong artists. And it's a project that I've been working on with our senior researcher, Anthony Jung. We wanted to, to ask, can we do something that would somehow defy the logic of the archive? So we invited these six artists to create portraits, in quotation marks, of fellow Hong Kong artists, not using the face, not using the, the body, uh, not using artworks, but using the, the archival materials that we have in AIA collections about these artists that they selected. So everything is personal. So for instance, one of the artists who actually conducted an oral history project in Hong Kong in 1998, when he wanted to publish a book about this project years later, one of the artists that he interviewed, he said he doesn't want to be part of this project because he does not want to be remembered. So the portrait in the end, it's really about an artist who chooses not to be remembered, or you know, is it even possible to ask for that? Or another artist chose someone who's mostly known as a writer, as a critic, who doesn't necessarily identify as an artist publicly, but who produces artistic work. Um, so that was also a question. When you come back to, to a library like this 20 years after now, how are we representing these individuals and how they contribute to the Hong Kong art scene? So these are some of the, the questions that we are asking these days, especially with the new library, especially with all these questions that we are asking about Hong Kong. Yeah, I'm basically preoccupied with these questions. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and I have a final question for you, Oscar. If you were to have your last supper, who would you invite and why? You know, for me, it's so difficult to answer this question because the the idea of a final thing only reminds me of the recent earthquakes in Turkey and all the people who were killed. And I'm still trying to, to process how to think, how to feel about the lost ones and how to mourn for the lost ones and the impossibility of it too. For the Last Supper, I think I would want to have 
family and loved ones. And instead of talking, I would just want to listen to the music and just read poems to each other. I think this is what we need. This is what I've been doing over the past month, just reading poetry for things that we cannot easily express. So this is what I would want to do. Many thanks, Oskay, for taking the time to sit down with me and for all the insight about the new Asia Art Archive in Hong Kong. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Last Supper with curator Oskay Ursoy. If you enjoyed listening to The Last Supper, you can support us by pressing the follow button or giving this podcast a star rating. Your support will help us to raise the awareness of art in Asia. Thank you again for listening. Please check the additional information in this podcast description. And before you go, The Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.